This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation, returning next week. I hope you had a nice Christmas and are looking forward to a happy new year. It is year-end report card time for our political leaders, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, and Toronto Mayor John Tory. And here to give them their marks, our Tuesday strategy panelists, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Conservative strategist and Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hill. High Road. Hi there, panelists. Happy holidays. Good day. Happy holidays, and thank you. I know today is a statutory holiday, so we really appreciate you taking time from your families to chat with us here on Zoomer Radio. Oh, of course. Our pleasure. Well, let's start with Justin Trudeau um, and how he has guided us through year two of the pandemic. Karen, would you like to start? Sure, yeah. I think um, I think it's this is a more complicated um, situation, I think, than we have faced previously, uh, because before there was um, a general willingness to follow along with public health and our political leaders, because we knew that we were in a situation where, um, you know, people were making the best decisions they could, so we followed along. And but now it's extremely complicated because there's um, differentiations of people that are vaccinated, and what does that mean for their ability to continue to travel and go to work? And even with the testing and the signals around how we should, you know, view the seriousness of this situation in terms of the hospital admissions and the testing. And so it's the messaging becomes extremely difficult now um, because it just with everybody's immunity at different levels and everybody wanting to know what they can do and not do. Um, it's it's not a simple message anymore, and that makes it very, very hard uh, for the Prime Minister. And it's not surprising that we don't have the daily briefings anymore because the messaging is so much more complicated than it was in the early days, which was just to stay home. And to be fair, uh, in in all of their cases, uh, Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, and John Tory, Karen, uh, they're probably still trying to figure out what the messaging is. 100%. As, yeah. 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 And it's so, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm sympathetic uh, to them because, you know, we, we saw when we imposed those travel restrictions from uh, South Africa and some of the African countries that first uh, reported the new variant, the Omicron variant. And um, I mean, I think that was generally viewed internationally as a disaster. So they backed away from some of those restrictions. But it's um, it's still a bit complicated to know how to navigate the country through this. John, reflecting back on 2021 and Justin Trudeau, and we will talk about um, the unpopular decisions of going to the polls and and not going to a ceremony on Truth and Reconciliation Day, but overall guiding us through year two. Well, I would say, Jane, that it, I can say this about all three leaders, and in fact, most of them, it's, it's been a bit of a roller coaster with respect to, you know, populations, you know, perception and, and what they've been able to do. And I think it's because, you know, this is a, a pandemic of historic proportions and it's also global. So you're also judged by other jurisdictions. 
not only, you know, what, what we're doing here in Canada, and you can sort of narrow it down to the province or the city, but if you look at it from a Canadian perspective, you know, you're, you're judged by what other jurisdictions are doing and how they've handled the, the, the pandemic because it's global in nature. And I think the Prime Minister probably started off the pandemic not so uh, not so good, you know, in a sense that other other countries and other jurisdictions were getting the vaccines a lot sooner than we were. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure that, that, you know, they were saying that we procured a lot of the vaccines, but yet they weren't being delivered. And, of course, that disseminated to the provinces. So that became a bit of a challenge. And then I think the other challenge that he faced was the... Uh, the shutting down of the airport. It wasn't until the provinces, namely mostly Ontario, put pressure on him to shut down airports a lot sooner uh, than he did, which cut, which which caused, obviously caused a lot of a lot of uh, uh, travelers to come in here who were affected. Now that said, I think he certainly you know made up for it as the pandemic went on uh, and certainly learned from those mistakes. He certainly shut down the borders a lot sooner this time around when the when not only Delta but also this new variant came around. And, and I think that was a smart move. And and I think he also was able to procure. Uh, vaccines uh, in the millions as a result of some of the slowness that happened at the beginning of the pandemic. So all of the, the challenges that were faced at the beginning, I think most politicians, including the prime minister, were able to learn from that and certainly certainly made uh, made the, the, the right decisions to try to stem as much as you can with what we're facing today. Uh, Charles, uh, John brings up a good point there. At the beginning of the of the year, we were waiting. We were way down at the bottom of the list. Canada was in terms of getting first shots into arms. Now, at the end of the year, we are leading the list of nations, uh, not only with first and second shots, uh, but boosters as well. Yes, we are. And and when I look at all these three individuals, and by the way, I want to preface by saying that I like all of them personally. They're good people. I believe they have good intentions. Some are more politically savvy and calculating than others. And Justin Trudeau, for me, is one of the top in regards to being savvy as a politician. He likes to frame the narrative, which is hard to do, similar to what he did with the boxing match, right? He, 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 he positions himself in a way that gives him that celebrity status. But having said that, in this regard, in regards to the pandemic fight, he's been resilient. I mean, he's been pressing for a vaccine. He's been very uh, consistent in his, uh, in his uh, approach. Um, but like Karen mentioned and John, it's a complicated issue. I think we're on the crepus. We're all. It seems to be going into herd immunity with this virus, seeing seeing as it's not as as uh, intense, but very um, uh, you know very transmissible. But yes. what will happen in the end, we'll have to see. But I think Trudeau has actually been seen as being more of a leader in this regard. Although, although if we're going to rate them, I, I do worry about the fiscal policies and the issues in regards to being more disciplined in our approach. Um, but when it comes to this pandemic fight, I think Trudeau gets, gets passed. And, and let, let me put that question to you as well, the Zoomer radio listener. Uh, we're chatting with our strategy panelists, as we do every Tuesday at the top of the show. Uh, but if you'd like to weigh in on how you think Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, and John Tory have led us through year two of the pandemic, certainly we'd like to hear from you. Numbers to call, 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Karen and Justin Trudeau barely survived uh, the very unpopular election that we all voted in in September. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that that is, um, you know, I think we're seeing the effects of that and that he, he wanted a clear mandate. He didn't get a clear mandate. And it's now, you know, I think going into next year, obviously the pandemic is front and center still with the, with the rising caseloads. But as Charles mentioned, there's some fiscal 
there's some seriousness around the fiscal situation that doesn't seem to be getting the attention that it needs. There's the inflation worries. There's the uh, getting, uh, you know, how do we recover from the natural disasters that BC saw? And so it it, it kind of has the feeling right now that the government doesn't have a good focus. The mandate letters were given, but they again they're very broad and uh, want to accomplish a lot of things. But but really, I, I think that it is really Justin Trudeau's um, if he's going to frame this narrative as Charles mentioned, he's got a, a short window to do it in the new year, and um, I and I think that he really does need to to focus his government. And in terms of Charles gave Justin Trudeau a pass, uh, would you like to be more specific than that in terms of the mark you would give him? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he does get a pass for sure because he did, I mean, he did win another government. Uh, it was a minority government. He wanted a majority, but he, he still won and he's still the prime minister and um, and he still has a chance to do great things for the country. So uh, definitely I would uh, give him a pass. Still the Prime Minister indeed, but only nine days, John, after he was re-elected. He failed to attend any ceremonies for Truth and Reconciliation Day, which was championed by his government. Is that, I mean, yet another gaffe? Uh, He has had many of them over the years. Is this one survivable? Will it be memorable for people, for instance, on next September 30th, next time we go to to the polls? Well, and Charles mentioned a word that I thought was really poignant with respect to to describing the prime minister, that was resilient. There's no question that, that this prime minister is resilient. We've seen it since the time he became a politician, and, and, and notwithstanding that when he became you know, the leader, the prime minister, uh, when he won his first majority, and then, of course, his uh, subsequent minority governments. And that is somebody who is, is generally seen and liked by Canadians, certainly at the beginning. Uh, but I think that's waning. And I think we saw that not only in, in sort of in his first minority government, but also in this one, where he purposely went to an election to try to get a majority government and try to use every tool that he possibly can, not only, you know, not only the, the, the timing of it, uh, but framing the, uh, the, the length of the actual election and so forth. And we saw, quite frankly, Jane, him starting off on a bad foot. We saw that Afghanistan was, a, was, was an issue that threw them off track. Um, the opposition, uh, mostly uh, Errol Tool picking up some steam, uh, but then he was able to pick it up and, and frame the, the, the remainder of the campaign on vaccines and politicize the whole vaccine debate and, of course, the whole issue of the gun. So he was able to kind of come out of it. But I do think, though, that he came out of it scarred uh, as much as he won. I think that, that there's a reason why, you know, us, us pundits and, uh, and media are questioning whether or not he's going to actually stay for the next election campaign because it was a damaging campaign for him. But Canadians have uh, uh, short memories, right? They they will they will they were mad at, at the prime minister for calling the election, but they gave him a pass and, and allowed him to get reelected. They were very upset, including the indigenous community, for going to Tofino on a vacation on a, on a day that was supposed to be a national remembrance day for the indigenous community. Uh, and he apologized and and is, is sort of making amends for that now. And, and we're seeing his popularity kind of creep back up. So. There's a resilience and a political savviness to this prime minister that I think carries them, uh, but I'm not so I'm not sure I'm not counting on it being much more than than this term. I think that you'll see him probably not run again in the next election. So, do you give him a third pass? <laughs> well, listen, I, I, up to now I would give him a B plus uh, okay. a pass for, for, for handling the pandemic uh, mostly. 
uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't give him a, a passing grade for passing the uh, for getting us in an election and for the indigenous uh, uh, sh- uh, uh, blunder. I think that's that's a fail. Okay, uh, but overall a generous B plus from Charles or from from John. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that's a hard one for me to give. I know, and you know what? That I we appreciate your objectivity. <laughs> um, and and you know, you mentioned there about will Justin Trudeau be there for the next election? He has said that he will. Uh, what about Aaron O'Toole? Just just to go off topic ever so slightly. Well, I'll be quick on this. I, I do think he'll survive. I, I think that Aaron O'Toole is. Uh, you know, is obviously facing some internal uh, some internal challenges, but not to the extent that I saw it with Andrew Shear when he was facing those. I think there's a, there's a, a certain segment of the party that is not happy with Aaron O'Toole, but by and large, the people that I've talked to and and the, the mass you know the mainstream of the party are very much supportive and don't want another leadership, knowing that we could be an election within two years. We're talking about our political leaders here in Canada, Ontario, and the City of Toronto with our strategy panel. If you'd like to weigh in with your thoughts, if just how do you think that Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, and John Tory, uh, how did they fare during 2021 in terms of their leadership? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Charles, to you and Doug Ford, guiding us through year two of the pandemic, how he's handled himself, uh, how he is, I mean, he's gone very quiet in the last week or two with uh, the Omicron cases rising. Uh, overall, your thoughts about Doug Ford? Uh, Doug Ford's popularity, similarly to Justin Trudeau, for that matter, is the weak opposition. And they're imploding and they're having difficulties. Under, with Doug Ford, the pass that he's getting isn't necessarily from pundits like ourselves. It's the public. They're excusing him. They're actually accepting him when he makes his gas. He acknowledges the mistakes, and then he moves on and does something different. But even with that pass, he's, these, these policies have failed. He's failed in education and health care, even in a transit file. I know he's fighting for 413, but other things are still in shambles. The infrastructure file, even small businesses have complained. But worse, the fiscal house that they're so proud of is in shambles. Now, that's partly because of the pandemic, but also the financial accountability officers made it clear that some of the policies and decisions that they've made have hurt the, the, the financing, the finances of the province and has downgraded the province's credit rating. But even still, even with all the gimmicks, with the stickers and with the license plates, even with the stuff when he was fighting Trudeau on carbon tax when he didn't need to because we had a system in place, People are giving him a pass. He's made friends with the labor groups. He has been seen as being more folksy and more real with people. And genuinely, he, he, when he's a bully, that's when he comes off as being negative. But when he's not, people excuse him. And uh, I think the real problem for him will be a strong opposition. Andrew Horvath is going to go through a leadership reviewer. If she hasn't, or if, she, if they don't, they should. Um, the liberals, I think, will gain some of those seats back. But in the end, it's the lack of uh, opposition for him that's going to give him that ability to stay on. So you, it sounds like you're giving him a pass. Yeah, unlike the Liberals, of which I was a part of, there was a mean uh, distrust for the party. That's not the case. Even though there's been a lot of imploding within their party as well, even though, even though they, uh, they eat their own, right? Uh, sorry, John, I don't mean that in a negative way, but when they, when they have a leadership review, you know that people are going to have their heads cut off. And that has happened in the Conservative Party. Doug has, has been able to succeed through that. 
Yes, and he I don't has. Think he's going to be challenged. Mm-hmm. Yes, he has. In fact, his right-hand person uh, was the c- candidate who came in second in Christine Elliott. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and just because you are a former Liberal cabinet minister for uh, the province of Ontario, Charles, your thoughts about Stephen Del Duca and how he might fare? Well, he can only go up. I mean, <laughs> we, we were in shambles ourselves. And uh, he's coming across uh, certainly very articulate, very consistent. Uh, he's not as charismatic as Doug Ford. He has some challenges to bring on some of, uh, uh, how should I say, the hearts of the individuals of the public. Uh, that's going to be a challenge for him still. Um, but I believe uh, Stephen will stick to the game plan. He knows the issues extremely well. He's intelligent, and that will come through. Karen, Doug Ford, the year that was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, it, 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 part, partly for me it's the context of where Doug began as a, a premier and where he is now. And, uh, and I think because he has shown a willingness to learn from his mistakes, I think, to Charles's point, he has... The public has endeared themselves somewhat to, to Doug. Um, I do think there are serious challenges, and I, you know, again with keeping the kids in school during the pandemic, I think will be crucial. Um, you know how we come out of the pandemic, some of the fiscal policies, um, but there's no question in my mind he's going to win the next election. And uh, partly because the opposition is not strong, and the Liberal Party hasn't had the chance to rebuild into the way it needs to to really be a formidable opposition to the government. And um, and also they they still have, they have talent. I mean the conservatives they've made some mistakes, but they have a talented group. And by and large, I think the decisions have on balance been good. And uh, I don't think that there's any real anger going into the election. Um, and because it's a fixed date, it'll uh, they'll benefit from that. And Charles. Oh no, I've been been to Charles already. Sorry, guys. I don't know why I've done that twice now. John, John, your thoughts? I still have. I have turkey brain still. <laughs> no, listen. I uh, you'd be surprised. You won't be surprised to know that I'll take a slightly different take than Charles on on Doug Ford uh, and his and his track record. But um, I, I'm less worried about Stephen Del Duca, and I'm more worried about the Liberal brand. Um, the Liberal brand itself has always been high, and, and obviously as, as a party that has been in government for a long time in Ontario, uh, it holds a lot of people, you know, when people are asked the question, who would you vote for, it's less likely they'll say Stephen Del Duca, and more likely they'll say the Liberal Party of Ontario. So so the brand, you know, always carries, uh, in, in some cases, you want to be a leader that obviously is higher than the brand, and Stephen Del Duca is certainly not higher than the brand, but um, I, I think the challenge with Stephen Del Duca is not dissimilar to the challenge that Aaron Tool had, and that is, they were both elected leaders during the pandemic, so they weren't able to get the, the, the honeymoon or that bounce that normal leaders get when they get elected. They weren't, you know, it wasn't a, a widely publicized uh, convention with all of the hoopla and and then, of course, the week-long, you know, uh, honeymoon after that. So they both suffered that. I think Stephen Duca suffered that the most um, because of it. And, and, and he's also not a charismatic person, but look, the liberal brand is a threat and, and something that we will we'll never underestimate. But as far as Doug Ford's concerned, uh, you know, there was no question the first year, uh, everybody knows, and we've talked about it, it was a challenging year for, for the premier. Uh, the pandemic hit, and I think we all saw his, uh, you know, and I use the roller coaster analogy again, I use it for all three leaders, but, it, but uh, you know, for, for, it, for Doug Ford, he certainly, his popularity, you know, hovered around 70, 80% for the first part of the pandemic because he came across empathetic and sympathetic. And, and Charles, I think Charles mentioned that he wasn't the bully, or Karen said he, when he's not a bully, he is, he is a retail politician at, at, at the best of times, which is he reaches out and he can connect with, with, with voters. And he did a lot of that during the first part of the pandemic, and, and it slipped a bit. 
sort of the second half, but I think he's picked up. And most people will realize that his steady approach during the pandemic has actually probably gotten Ontario at leading uh, other provinces and other jurisdictions because of that steady approach when he was being pressured to open up sooner, quicker and faster. One of the major issues of the pandemic was actually in 2020, provincial issues, and that was the devastation to long-term care and all the thousands of elders that we lost in the first and second waves. Uh, This year, Doug Ford made a change in um, the leadership to long-term care, moving Rod Phillips to that portfolio and Marilee Fullerton out because that's been such an important issue. Uh, And now we are going back almost two years or at least a year and a half uh, Karen, do you see any real changes, any real positives to turning long-term care around? Oh, most definitely. And I, I think that, um, you know, for for whatever reasons, Rod's been able to get the, the money that was required uh, to invest in long-term care, to get um, the confidence of the system back, to make sure that the third doses got administered to those in long-term care and assisted living. And, um, and the proof is that we haven't seen the level of illness uh, because of COVID in the long-term care sector that we saw in the first and second wave. And uh, so whether it's because the system itself has learned more because they have a steady hand at the helm, I don't know, or a combination of the two is most likely. Um, I think that we are seeing better outcomes in long-term care and, and in, in the seniors' uh, assisted living homes and uh, retirement homes than, than certainly we saw before. And particularly because the prevalence of COVID is that much greater and the fact that it's not impacting the homes, I think is significant. Okay, we'll leave it there for provincial politics. Uh, John Tory, uh, he would get the highest marks from me out of all three leaders. Uh, The man is a machine. He is always public-facing, always taking questions. Uh, I mean, his constitution is extremely strong. He has barely taken a day off here or there, uh, but for the most part has been with the people of Toronto the entire pandemic. Uh, Charles, would you agree, disagree? Absolutely. If I was going to rate these three leaders in order, it would be John Tory, then Trudeau, and then Doug Ford. And Trudeau, I mean, and John Tory, he still commands a lot of media attention. He's, he, as you mentioned, he's very strong. He works hard. He's everywhere. Even when he has a sore foot and he's still, <laughs> you know, he's limping about, he makes every effort to be, a, to be around. And he's been effective. He's been effective even when he moves his political spectrum. As a conservative, he plays the left as well as he does the right, yes. possibly even more so. And that was a grit for Tory. I helped him on his first, leader, his first campaign for mayor and the second, and then, of course, he became the leader of the Conservative Party, and I ran against, as a, as a liberal, I ran for myself in the Liberal Party. But he's been seen as a strong advocate for Toronto, especially being visible during the pandemic. As you mentioned, he's everywhere. And... I believe, however, I do really believe uh, that he'll make an announcement in the new year. I think he'll take his walk in the snow. He's been stressed to no end. He has nothing more to prove. Um, I, I think I think he'll say, you know what, I'm going to leave when I'm on a high note and uh, and take and take time for his family. Oh, interesting. Uh, what do you think about that, John? Will John Tory run again? And and how do you rate his performance during this past year? Well, I had the privilege and the honor of, of co-chairing his uh, his first mayoral campaign uh, when he won, and, and, uh, and so I saw firsthand 
his uh, his just nonstop energy. Uh, he is truly someone who likes to go from morning to night, uh, and we're seeing that throughout the pandemic. And you know, so without a doubt, I, I'd rate I'd rate his his his, his scores high. Uh, I thought he's done a good job in trying to keep the city, the largest city in Canada, you know, in, in a way that's in check. Now, of course, as a municipality, he's got the federal government and the provincial government above him. So he's got to really follow what happens at the federal level and then what happens at the provincial level, and it trickles down to the municipality. But, but even with that, I thought he was, he was smart to be on TV when he needed to be on TV, and, and his messaging was, was always consistent with the public health official in, Ontario, in Toronto, but also consistent with some of the other ones. So I thought it would rate him high. As far as running again, listen, you know, he always said he'd be a two-term uh, mayor, but, but I think that there's something in him. Uh, there's still that, that pilot light burning in him that, that could very well, we might, we might see uh, him running again for the third term. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that past him. I think he'll run again as well. Let's go to Sita in Mississauga. She's one of our regular callers. Sita, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. What would you like to add? Yes, it was a slow start. No one knew much about the virus. Even now, we're still learning. Um, Mr. Tory. He gets an A+. He pushes the vaccine and is still having given up today. Mr. Ford, I'll give him a low grade because he is not acting fast enough. And Mr. Trudeau, I'm very happy with him, the way he is handling the pandemic moving forward. Definitely a pass. Sita, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks. Take care, everyone. (laughs) And Karen, uh, your thoughts on John Tory before we wrap up. Certainly uh, the fact that I think he is most suited for municipal leadership because... It, it tends not to be as political. I mean, there are different voices on council, as you well know firsthand, but yeah. he seems to be able to uh, bridge the gap of the politics. Most definitely. And I, I think that um, he has been a steady hand for the city. And even when there was unpopular decisions being made, I think that he was able to, to work uh, you know, across the political divide to make sure that there was... Uh, a united front and how the city was going to manage through the pandemic. Um, I still think, you know, I, 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 you know, John, John, sure, if he, if he ran for a third term, he'd win, no question. Um, I think it's just a question of whether he wants to and uh, whether he feels he has unfinished work to do. And I think that will really be what he will have to reflect on over the next couple of months. Um, but should he choose to run again, I think it, he'll, he'll easily be reelected because generally speaking, um, people find that he was a steady hand at a time um, when the city needed it, both after Mayor Ford was elected and served his term as mayor and now through the pandemic. I think you're right. I mean, he did have some rivalry last time in Jennifer Key's map, but I'm not sure somebody of that level would step up should he choose to run a third time. Okay, well, I thank you all for your input, as always. Very interesting uh, as we talk about the leaders and the year that was. And uh, I wish you all, from all of us here at Zoomer Radio, a very happy new year. You too, Jane. All the best. Happy all new, the year, best Jane, new year, everyone. Yeah, all the best. Our strategy panelists, Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Conservative Strategist and Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Still to come here on Fight Back, how are Canadians feeling as the year comes to an end? Maybe a little better than you would expect. We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host 
Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation for the rest of this week. If I were to give you a list of emotions, I wonder which you would put first as the way you would most describe yourself as feeling. Our friends at Maru Public Opinion have conducted a survey to find out. The question, taking all things together, when you reflect on where you are at the end of this year, what are the top five emotions that you feel right now? Love for you to call in on that. Here are the descriptives. We're talking about quite a few emotions here. Frustrated, anxious, fortunate, hopeful, grateful, optimistic, isolated, calm, bored, nervous, helpless, sad, edgy, happy, upset, safe, hopeless, afraid, or scared. Please feel free to call us, call in and let us know how you are feeling, if you would like to share, 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. So that was quite a list of emotions. But to top the list, Canadians uh, are most in common in feeling frustrated, Half of Canadians feeling frustrated. Anxious is up there as well. But also at the top of the list, feeling fortunate, hopeful, and grateful, as opposed to the feelings at the bottom of the list, which are hopeless, afraid, and scared. Joining us uh, to discuss these poll results and, in general, how we as Canadians are feeling wrapping up 2021, Dr. Anne Wilson, professor in the psychology department at Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, thank you for being with us during the holidays. Hi, nice to be here. What do you make of those results? Well, I think that uh, it's certainly no surprise that some of the emotions that Canadians are feeling are really quite a mix, right? So frustration for many people is likely to be because the pandemic is still happening despite all of the efforts that we have made um, and potentially frustration about plans having to change and pivoting holidays and so on. Um, And of course, there's a lot to be anxious about. Um, it's also really worth recognizing, though, how uh, how many positive emotions were near the top of that list. So people are taking time to reflect on what they're still grateful for, what they are um, feeling fortunate to still be able to uh, to be enjoying and having, and uh, and feeling hopeful for the future. So you know, it's it's uh, not unusual, and it's actually pretty psychologically healthy to have a diverse range of emotions. And um, one thing that many Canadians might also be feeling is a little bit of, you know, a collective sense of where we are, right? Because there are so many people feeling the same thing across the country um, that if nothing else, we may end up feeling some solidarity with our fellow citizens. And you make an excellent point, because certainly we were all feeling frustrated um, with the Omicron variant kind of changing the course of the pandemic and as a result, changing many of our plans over the holidays. But at the same time, you know, one in three Toronto residents who are eligible to get a booster now have a third shot. And and, uh, that number continues to grow. And I know we're all feeling grateful for science and being able to be vaccinated for COVID-19. So, yeah, it's sort of on the one hand, I'm upset or I'm annoyed. And on the other hand, here I am and I'm safe and I'm healthy. That's right. And 
stress is an emotion that has a number of different um, components to it. So a lot of the emotions that we're hearing about frustration and anxiety are related to people's experience of stress. Stress, when it um, encourage us to take, to, encourages us to mobilize and take action, can actually be a really adaptive kind of feeling. And we are in a lucky place now in the pandemic where a lot of the stressors are things we, ha- we do have some control over, right? So we can make sure we're vaccinated and boosted. We can make sure to access tests and to still practice the public, the public health safety kinds of measures that we need to, especially around vulnerable people. So there is a lot more that we have control over at this stage, and that may well be that one of the reasons why we are still feeling hopeful despite the fact that we're not quite out of it yet. What about the isolation factor that came in around seventh on the list? You know, I know that has been a big deal for a lot of people who have had to work from home. And then, you know, as the case here at the Zoomerplex, um, you know, people were starting to come back to work towards the end of October. Uh, No sooner did Omicron come along and Moses had to send a lot of those people back home to keep those of us who are physically in the building safe. Um, So it's that unpredictability and that isolation. Uh, Would you say that's leading to a lot of negative emotions uh, at this stage in the pandemic anyway? It certainly can. We know that social connection and uh, feeling like what we belong and feeling, uh, you know, that we're, we're with other people is really fundamental for people's mental health in general. Something else, though, that we have learned is that um, there's quite a difference between being isolated and being lonely. So we can be alone physically or distant physically from others without necessarily losing the possibility of social connection. And there's certainly some research over the last year or so of the pandemic that shows that connecting with others, even virtually or um, in other ways that are safe, can still really serve a lot of the same mental health benefits as being physically with others. So, you know, it is something I think that we need to recognize is important and uh, to deliberately try to find ways to make those connections stay vibrant, even if we can't necessarily gather with as many people as we would like to. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane for Libby and Dr. Ann Wilson, professor in the psychology department at Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, some of our listeners want to get in on this conversation. Uh, we're all experiencing one feeling or another, sometimes combined. A joy in Markham, how are you making out? Oh, hi, Jane. Um, I, from that list that you mentioned, well, I would say all of the above. But <laughs> if I were to choose one, yeah. it would have to be grateful because um, I've called into the show before and I did mention, I think it was Libby at the time, that at age 78, I am still in the workforce, in the nursing homes, taking care of the elderly running after the dementias and uh, Alzheimer's and uh, it's a very stressful job and I'd say at my age I am very grateful that I'm able to rise up every morning and to say thank you God I have a job 
and I am going to uh, stay active, remain active. I'm not going to go into that couch because um, that couch is going to get me. So um, I just want to say how grateful I am and uh, thank God for that. And uh, I would encourage all those who are suffering with, uh, you know, uh, loneliness and depression and all of the above, just try to stay active or listen to some good music. Stay active. That's my message for everyone. Wow, Joy. Uh, not only are you mentally fit, you're obviously physically fit at 78 to do the mm-hmm. job that you're doing. You better believe it. I shovel my own snow, do my own gardening, you name it. Uh, if you ask me, I'll change the oil in my car. You know, <laughs> so... Well, thank you so much for your message of positivity. Uh, You know, you're making us all smile for sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's the key. That's the key. Okay, then. Have a great day and Happy New Year when it comes. Happy New Year to you. Joy in Markham. Uh, What do you make of that call, Dr. Wilson? I think there's a lot of psychological wisdom to that call as well. So some of the things that Joy mentioned, including physical activity, helping others, right? So helping others in a nursing home. Um, doing something that brings meaning, purpose, um, having a sense of, of spirituality. These are all things that are really great for all of us. And it sounds like you get lots of exercise as well, which is uh, not only good for your physical body, but it's really good for people's mental state as well. I mean, staying busy, we all know that when we're busy and we're preoccupied and we're not thinking about ourselves and too much in our own heads, we feel better. Uh, and and also, how how much credibility is there to helping others? I mean, Joy is doing her job still, her profession, working in long-term care, but volunteering as well, getting out and helping somebody else or making that phone call to, a, to an isolated friend who maybe you haven't chatted with in a long time. How does that benefit us personally? Helping others, even though it helps the other person, actually helps the, the, the helper nearly as much or even more in some cases. So it's a psychologically really powerful um, experience to know that you can help others. And that can be with, you know, physical, functional kinds of things. It can also simply be by offering others kindness and support. Um, So, for example, we heard gratitude was one of the things that was high on the list that people were feeling. And we know in, in psychology research that Simply giving someone a call or writing them a letter to express what that what they have, what they are to us, that makes us feel so grateful for having them in our lives, is something that can be just a huge uh, uplifting um, kind of experience for both people. Right, so you're helping the other person as well as really boosting your own mood at a time when that might be really important. Let me ask you this, Dr. Wilson. We are 20, almost 22 months into this pandemic. Uh, Where do we get the strength to carry on, to not sort of, to not lose hopefulness uh, that it eventually will end? We don't know when, so that's out of our control. How do we deal with those emotions? It's a good question. I think that Um, the fact that we're in a different place now, 22 months in, is, you know, we can get uh, very frustrated because it's continuing to go. But we've also learned a lot of lessons. And um, one thing we can do is to take stock of 
where we have come from and where we're going. It can sometimes feel really uh, frustrating to think about how long this is going on. But if we think back to where we were at the beginning of this, um, I actually read a, a study recently that suggested that one really another uplifting thing you can do for your mood is to write a letter to your past self, thanking them for all of the things that they did to help you to cope over the pandemic, right? So you're just thinking about um, how much you've learned and grown. And then the same thing, where are we going to be a year from now is going to be quite different from where it is right now. Um, and as much as we're not through this yet, we have so many more tools to be able to manage this in a different way now than we did a year ago. And we're so much more, um, you know, in control of where things are going compared to in the past. So I think that there's still a lot to be hopeful for. There was another survey that also came out today in addition to the Maru public opinion poll on our individual emotions, and that's a Leger poll that finds, in general, Canadians are happier now than last year and expect to feel even happier in 2022. So uh, there is a lot of optimism about uh, the future, even the short-term future, uh, despite the curve that we've all been thrown by Omicron. Yeah, I think it's important to to recognize that, right, that there is always going to be better times ahead and that even if things aren't exactly where we'd like them to be, um, there's a lot to be to, to be positive about. Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Very interesting. Dr. Ann Wilson, professor in psychology at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. Jane, for Libby, and still one more segment to go on today's Fight Back. As the year comes to a close, you may be thinking about making a final charitable donation for 2021. We will discuss what's being done to help bladder cancer patients at my favorite charity next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. I just want to let you know we have a very exciting show lined up for tomorrow. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the Ontario COVID-19 Advisory Table, will be our special guest on Fight Back for the entire hour. Tomorrow from 12.04 until 1 p.m. And Dr. Uni will give us an update on the state of Omicron in the province of Ontario. Ontario, what he and his colleagues are advising, Premier Doug Ford and the cabinet ministers, and he will also take your calls. Dr. Peter Uni, tomorrow on Fight Back. Well, longtime listeners to Zoomer Radio will know that I'm an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada, Bladder Cancer Canada, in honor of my mom. Sandy, who passed away with bladder cancer in 2012. Now, this organization is a volunteer-based network that helps and supports bladder cancer patients as they're going through treatment and recovery. There are many reputable and caring charitable organizations out there where you can feel good about making a donation.
donation and a positive difference. And we thought we would use this segment to inspire you to make a donation that connects with what means the most to you as the year wraps up and uh, the days are numbered to make a donation uh, which will count towards your 2021 tax return. Angela Pelche is a bladder cancer survivor and she joins us on the line now. Hi, Angela. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, happy holidays to you. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really great. You know, we're snowed in here in uh, in Manitoba, um, so it's a lovely, nice, white Christmas. Okay, good. If you don't have any place to go and you have enough food in the house, right? Exactly. I stocked up. I'm good for another week at least. Oh, nice. Well, tell us, tell us your story. Uh, and, and you're not an older person either, are you? No, I'm actually, I, I just turned 40. And yes. so, tell, so us your, tell us about your journey with bladder cancer. So I was diagnosed um, when I was 38. It was uh, November 2019, and it was a few months prior to that I started seeing blood in my urine, um, which is, you know, the one of the main symptoms for bladder cancer. I was originally treated for uh, UTIs, which I did get often. I do have spina bifida. I self-catheterized. Um, so it was something that was frequent for me. But I knew it was different. I never used to see blood. I had pain in my kidney area, um, in my pelvis. I knew something was wrong. Um, So my doctor decided to, like, let's send you for a cystoscopy. Let's take a look at this. And um, it came back that, yeah, I had bladder cancer. So that was that was uh, a little scary to hear. Went to uh, the Internet, like everyone does, to find some info. Came across Bladder Cancer Can, though, which I'm so thankful for. Read up on everything. So 2020 for me um, was I started with BCG treatments, which is usually what uh, people with bladder cancer start with. And then I had four TURBTs, so four surgeries in 2020, and that was just uh, the resection of the bladder tumor. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, all the treatment surgeries actually didn't, um, wasn't effective for me. So by November 2020, my bladder cancer became muscle invasive. So we had to switch gears, and that's when my urologist told me that, okay, your bladder needs to be removed now. We can no longer fight it with, uh, with just treatments and surgeries alone. Right. So starting uh, the beginning of this year, January 2021, I started with 12 weeks of chemotherapy. And then in May of this year, I had a radical cystectomy. So I had to have my bladder removed. And now I'm living with a urostomy. And how are you managing with that? Um, you know, it's, I, I have some days where it's harder than others. Um, it's pretty life-changing, obviously. Um, but... On a few days where I was really down, I look at that pouch and I remind myself, which my doctor reminded me as well, that it's there because I didn't want to die from bladder cancer. Right. I was fighting the whole time. I didn't want to die, of course not. Um, and that was just, it had to happen. So I, I try to remind myself and I think it's, uh, I think it's getting a little easier. Um, you know, the things that you don't, you don't hear is that, you know, you might have to change your clothing or you have to, um, there's just little ch- life-changing 
things that need to happen. But I'm 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 getting used to it. I'm still fairly new with it, so it's a little bit of a learning experience trying to find which pouches work for you. Um, you know, in the beginning, you have leaks and there's skin irritation, but like it gets easier. Right. I re- I remember day. my mom actually did really well with that, uh, and in fact, she joked one day, "It's really nice never having to have the se- the sensation that you have to pee." Right. Exactly. You know, I I laugh because now when I go into a public washroom, I don't have to touch anything. I don't even have to pull my pants down. (laughs) That's something you don't think of. Right, right. Kind of nice. Yeah, and and she was always so positive. And like you, you know, my mom was diagnosed with UTIs when there was blood in her urine. And um, because this is going back to 2009, 2010, there wasn't that awareness of... If you see blood in your urine, you go and see a urologist and get bladder cancer ruled out. So I know that Bladder Cancer Canada has been a big reason why there is that much increased awareness from 10, 12 years ago. People know, a lot of people know now that if you see blood in your urine, you go get checked to make sure you don't have bladder cancer, right? Absolutely. That's the awareness that they put out, and it's great. I mean, people that know nothing about it, you know, would never think of bladder cancer. At least they're seeing that, and it, it sparks something. They're like, wait a minute, this isn't normal. I need to see my doctor. And as we all know, the early diagnosis is what's important to help. Well, exactly. And, and and so now you've been cancer-free for six months. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so that, my, uh, my last sign. scan showed no evidence of disease. Of course, I'm still going to be watched, as, you know, everyone with a cancer diagnosis will, but it looks... The outcome looks good for me. You know, as we tick down to the end of the year and, you know, maybe every year you set aside $500 for charitable donations or maybe $1,000 and you've got a couple hundred dollars left to spend. I'm not here to say that it's Bladder Cancer Canada that should get your funds. Uh, What I am trying to say is that, you know, find a charitable organization that means something to you uh, to donate those dollars. And certainly that's what Bladder Cancer Canada it means to you, Angela. If you were to describe why you would donate to Bladder Cancer Canada, what what would those reasons be? You know, for me, it was it was a place that I could turn to. There were I got answers, I got support. Um, it gave me so much information to know what was up next for me when I got to the point where I had to have my bladder removed. I was always already aware of what was needed, and that was from going to Bladder Cancer Canada's website and reading through their guidebooks. So I knew what to expect, and that is comforting when you have information on your side, especially when you're going into a doctor and you're getting everything kind of thrown at you and it's it's hard to process. Um, So I just, I would love to see someone make a donation to BCC to help others have a place to turn to well, to get even, the answers, to get the support. Right. And even the fact that you are here with us today on Zoomer Radio, you are advocating on behalf of this organization, sharing your experience. And I know there are many survivors who do the same for bladder cancer patients who are undergoing treatment and recovery. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and another thing that, uh, you know, I, I thought of is, it also gives me a platform to share my story, and I'm hoping that I can help others by hearing my story and I have a good outcome, maybe not quite the one that I wanted, 
um, with having a urostomy, but it's still, I have my life. And you can live years and years and years with a urostomy pouch, which I named Beatrice, by the way, which I thought was a, <laughs> it's a nice little positive spin to it. <laughs> well, you are very positive, And, uh, you know, thank you for bringing awareness to Bladder Cancer Canada and, um, and, and your guidance and your experience. And if you'd like more information, bladdercancercanada.org. Angela Pelche, uh, it was really lovely to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, all the best. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Okay, well, that is Fight Back for today. I'll be back with you again tomorrow. And just a reminder, in case you missed it, Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the Ontario COVID-19 Advisory Table, will be our special guest to take your calls for the entire hour tomorrow, beginning after the noon news. Have a great day. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.